Lord, as I share this word today. I pray for understanding and a heart for each of us willing to obey. Lord, would you just clear away all the underbrush? Would you burn away all that impedes our progress in your kingdom? And let us with clear eyes see what you desire and how to follow you. May the light of your word shine on our path today. Could we, Lord, just lay aside all preconceptions and hear your word for what it says? Lord, thank you. I pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Uh, The message that I want to share with you today comes from the book of Acts. And it is the miracle of change. The miracle of change. We first pick up the story of this man as Stephen is being martyred, as stones are being hurled at him, And there's a young man who is watching the coats acting as a witness for the murder of Stephen. Now, this young man is a man of great authority. A great favor from the high priest is upon him. He is a learned man under Gamal, who was recognized as one of the greatest scholars of that day. And he was an angry man because he saw his precious Jewish heritage being threatened by this new teacher who had come on the scene, who had been crucified and now was being spread the rumor that he had arisen from the dead. It's interesting to me that this man is not angry at the high priest who has purchased with money his position of high priest. He is not angry at the wickedness or corruption among the priesthood and in the temple. He's angry instead at a group of people who are lifting up the man they call the Christ, the Messiah. It's it's always of great interest to me where a man directs his anger that defines who he is. I'm angry today. I'm angry that America has turned aside from everything of righteousness and is murdering babies. I'm angry today that every possible wicked corruption 
is going on amongst those this nation has trusted with our heritage, with our Congress, with our, with our representatives. I'm angry today that television is spewing out such utter wickedness and it crept so softly in among even the church. What we're angry at and what we're angry about defines us. Jesus was angry when he saw the temple being desecrated by the money changers and the sellers of doves and calves. He got a whip and he cleaned them out. It was the zeal for the house of God that drove him. He was angry with the Pharisees and called them snakes, brood of vipers. What upsets us defines us. And this man, Saul, was defined by his rage against this new people who were calling themselves the people of the way, the people of the path. And so we pick up again the story of Saul in Acts, the eighth chapter, verse one. Now Saul was giving approval to his murder. And there came in that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, a church now well over 15,000 in membership. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him But Saul was trying to destroy the church, entering house by house, dragging away both men and women. He was delivering them to prison. Now, I want you to note, Saul was trying to destroy the church by entering house by house. You're going to find later in the story of Saul that he now again was going house to house, but this time as a prisoner of Jesus Christ, teaching righteousness. So there was a great transformation in this man who was angry at the people of the way, going house to house, taking them as prisoners, binding them and taking them off to jail to be prosecuted, to be murdered. This was not the only one he stood in witness of as Stephen is martyred. He watched as many were executed, trying to destroy the church. Now we find the next portion, chapter 9. Verse 1, now Saul was still breathing out a threat and murder against the disciples of the Lord. 
and having went to the high priest, he requested letters from him to the synagogue of Damascus, so that if he may find any being of the way, both men and women, he may bring them to Jerusalem, having been bound. So he is utterly determined, even going to Damascus, a long journey, not a short trip, several days of walking, to go and take captive the people of the way. He is enraged by them. He's on the way with his entourage. He has letters of permission for the arrest. He has the power of the judiciary behind him. He has the power of the executive behind him. He is functioning as a special police officer to round up the people of the way. Now, if we were to take a therapeutic approach to Saul, we would say without doubt he had an anger problem. And we would say he had an ambition problem to be somebody. We would say that he was extremely proud and arrogant. So he's walking with his entourage. Have you ever seen a man walk who is full of his own authority? I saw a policeman walking that way this last week. There was kind of a a strut to his walk. Nobody could doubt he was the man on the block, that he had the power, he had the gun, he had the the plastic ties to bind anybody who challenged his authority. That's how Paul was walking. He was making his way with all of the arrogance of his youth, all of the arrogance of his authority and power. Verse 4, I'm sorry, verse 3. And on the journey, he came near to Damascus. And suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. And having fallen to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but you must get up and enter into the city, and it will be told to you what you need to do. Now, we've read that how many times? I've read it countless times. But I have been shocked coming back and reading it again at what is not there. What is not there is as as informative as what is there. Jesus does not say to him, Saul, Saul, you have an anger problem. 
and we need to spend some time working on this problem. He does not say to him, Saul, Saul, would you stop treating me this way, please? Could we have a conversation together, please? There's some things that I want to do for you. I have a plan for your life. I love you. So, Saul, would you please come sit down beside me and let's, let's talk about this? Jesus does not say that. Now, I'm accustomed, because of my background, training, education, personality, I am inclined to want to speak to every person in terms of, how can I be helpful to you? How can I encourage you? How can I help your understanding of who Jesus is so that you can begin to allow him to change your life? That's not Jesus' approach. And I've been going through the scriptures and I've been reading again, all of the encounters Jesus had with sinner man. Never once in any approach did Jesus start to deal with a sinner by talking with them about a wonderful plan for their life. He did not begin with, I love you. You're precious to me. I've chosen you. He never starts that way with one person that I can find in all of the New Testament. Instead, at every point, he began with the holiness of God. The holiness of God. It's, you have offended a holy God. You have sinned against me. Look, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you violating me? Why are you doing this? And so Saul asks the right question. Who are you? I am Jesus. I am Messiah who came to save his people from their sin. He comes right back at Paul with a confrontation. Do you remember the rich young ruler? Why do you call me good? He started with a a rebuke to the rich young ruler because the rich young ruler was coming with his list of needs so that he could be able to inherit something. He came to get something, and the Lord stopped him and said, why are you calling me good? He started the whole conversation with a rebuke because Jesus refuses 
to approach a man based on, I love you, I have a wonderful plan for your life. Now, would you be willing to just work along? Let's work on your anger problem for a while. Let's work on your bitter root for a while. Let's work on this for a while. And we'll spend the next years doing this. I've taught that. And it's fantasia. It's not real. It's not where God is. It's not what Jesus did. He did something very, very different. You'll see it more as we go through this. You must get up, enter into the city, and it will be told to you what you need to do. So God approaches a man not trying to curry his favor. He comes and says, why are you doing this? Stop it. Now, I'm going to tell you what you have to do. Every part of the human heart is going to rise up in rebellion and say, what? You're going to tell me what I'm supposed to do? There's nothing so gauged to trigger the deep rebellion of a man's heart when God comes and says, do this. Paul talks about this with the law. He says, the law was added to increase my rebellion. So the law was added, look, do this. And the human heart is utterly revealed. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go my own way. I'm in charge of my life. I'll do what I want to do. I'm not going to submit to you. So Paul You must get up and enter into the city, and it will be told to you what you need to do. The men traveling with him are speechless, hearing the voice without understanding, seeing no man. But now they helped Saul up from the ground, and his eyes having been opened, he was seeing nothing. It was vital that Saul be brought to a place of blindness where he could not take care of business anymore, where he could not rebel. He could not take himself to Damascus. He had to be led by the hand to Damascus. He was not going to enter Damascus as this proud, self-righteous, angry man. God would not allow it. So he is led by the hand, He is brought into Damascus, and now for three days, he cannot see. He fasts. He doesn't eat or drink. You understand what's going on in his heart? His whole world has been turned upside down. I wonder how long it took for the anger to be dealt with in his heart. I wonder at what point did he say, Okay, Jesus, you are the Messiah. He knew all the prophecies of Messiah. He was a scholar. So now there is a deep inner process going on in Saul's heart where there is a total reorientation of his life away from himself to Jesus that he is not the great man who will go and deliver Judaism. 
Jesus is the great man who will deliver Judaism. And he has to go through that process in his inner mind and his inner heart. I've been going through a bit of that process over the last weeks and months, having to look at the reality that salvation is not gradual. Now when I hear preaching that that encourages people to continue in the way and to struggle with their sin and and to repent and know that tomorrow you're going to have to come back and repent for the same thing all over again. But it's okay. Just continue struggling with your sin. Really? Does the blood of Jesus Christ not deliver a man and change him? And we have here a perfect example. It takes him three days to sort through his emotions and his intellect to come to a position where he is willing to lift Jesus up as the Messiah, as God. That's a radical transformation. And when a man or woman is confronted with the gospel and they recognize they have no choice, it is either totally surrender and be given to Jesus, leave behind all sin, or stay in your rebellious state, continue your religious practices, but you're lost. The rich young ruler walked away. Saul did not walk away. He could have. He could have had food and water, and he could have hired a donkey, and they could have led him blind back to Jerusalem. And he could have said he was attacked by these disciples of the Messiah, so-called. He could have utterly rejected this voice speaking to him, saying, I am Jesus. He was not forced to submit to Jesus. Perhaps he would have regained his sight in time. And he could have become an even more bitter enemy of the cross. But the power of Jesus and the call of Jesus were put to this man in such a way that it utterly broke through his rebellious heart. And he said, all right, all right. Now he has a vision. And in the vision, he sees a man coming. A man who's going to lay his hand on him. A follower of the way. And he's going to receive his sight. Now, he would have had reason to question the sanity of what he has just been through if Ananias had refused to go and lay hands on him for the restoration of his sight. I am unwilling to follow Jesus without seeing his interaction in the physical realm. There has to be something real. 
or following Jesus is a fantasy. There has to be that radical change. Some of us have taken a great deal more time than was necessary to experience that. And one of the great sorrows of my heart is how long it has taken me to begin to understand these very hard truths of Scripture. I will not ever again try to talk somebody into dealing with their anger or dealing with their lust or their addiction. It is sin, and it must be dealt with as sin, and it must be repented of as sin. And someone says to me, as just this week they did, you know, I just fail every time. I can't, I can't get the victory. Well, in the past, I would have said, brother, be encouraged. Be encouraged. Jesus loves you. <clears throat> no. The word is, if you're not gaining the victory, you have not totally given yourself to Jesus Christ. You have not done the work of real repentance. So get serious with God, and he'll get serious with you, and he will deliver you. He will set you free. There is no biblical, humanistic answer to rebellion against Jesus. It is simply to be cut off. Verse 10 Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus, Ananias by name, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Having arisen, you must go to the street being called Straight and inquire in the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus, Saul by name. For behold, he is praying And he saw a man in a vision, Ananias by name, having entered and having put a hand on him that he may see again. Now Ananias does something that is reserved for those who truly follow Jesus. Lord, I've heard from many concerning this man, how much evil he did to your holy ones in Jerusalem. And in this place, he has authority from the chief priest to bind all the ones calling on your name. Lord, are you sure you know what you're talking about? You really want me to go to this man? He's going to imprison me. The Lord said, you must go. Because this man is an instrument of choice for me to carry my name before Gentiles and kings And sons of Israel, for I will show him how many things it is necessary for him to suffer for the sake of my name. And Ananias went away, entered into the house, and having placed his hand upon him, he said, Brother. He didn't need to say brother. Jesus didn't tell him to say brother. There was no rebellion in Ananias' heart. Brother Saul, 
the Lord has sent me, the one having been manifest to you on the way on which you were coming, in order that you may see again and may be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he saw again and arose baptized. Now here's an interesting argument. I won't get into it today. Uh, Lavender would insist that this was not a water baptism, that the structure of the Greek is that he was baptized by the Holy Spirit. And having received food, he regained strength, and Saul was with the disciples in Damascus several days. And immediately he was preaching the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Now, I want you to see this. It's startling that when a man comes to Jesus Christ, hears the rebuke for his sin, submits and surrenders his life totally in the hand of Jesus, he will be baptized by the Holy Spirit and he will begin to proclaim the name of Jesus. He will begin to win disciples to Jesus. He will begin to fulfill the gospel commission. Now in Ephesians, the first chapter, verse 7, this Christ that's being spoken of by Paul, in whom we have the redemption by means of his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he granted richly unto us in all conceivable wisdom and understanding, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself in the course of the management of the fullness of the time periods, together, together, all things in Christ, the things in the heavens and the things upon the earth. So the purpose of Jesus is to confront the rebellion of man and to transform that man by supernatural power into a witness to bring everything under the headship of Jesus. And in that process of buying us by his blood, he removes our sin. The sin is removed. And we are made new in Christ Jesus. And then you come to chapter 2 of Ephesians in light of this. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you being dead in the trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the age of this world, according to the ruler of the authority of the air, the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience. He was once one of those. And when he was confronted by Jesus, 
three days to process that confrontation, he then submitted. And the and he was dead in trespasses and he was made alive in Christ. The Spirit now working in the sons of disobedience among whom also we all, he's including himself, were once formally dominated by the lust of our flesh, doing the will of the flesh, doing the will of the mind. And we used to be by nature children of wrath, even as the others. So Paul is drawing a very straight line and saying, look, we were all children of wrath. We were all going for our lust. We were all a part of that deal. And when confronted by Jesus, everything changed. It was not a process that was lengthy. It was a short process. It was not spending his life struggling with his sin, struggling to become an overcomer, fighting with his temper, fighting with all of the other aspects of fleshly life. He did not engage in that battle. When he came to Jesus, he died. He was crucified with Christ. He no longer lived. It was over. In three days, it was over. I think we need to totally change our expectation of what's going to happen as we share the gospel with people. And we're not going to be able to communicate the gospel in a way that says God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. And if you'll just admit that you've made some mistakes in your life and you've sinned, and if you'll, re- if you'll confess that to him and you'll accept him as your savior, he'll work out his plan in your life. Garbage. No, he won't. No, he won't. You'll stay in your sin and you'll be utterly useless to the kingdom of God. There has to be that radical cutting off and saying, Jesus, I belong to you. I am crucified with you. And I totally give myself up to you. And I submit to you. Please, there's nothing more difficult than to submit to Jesus and to submit to one another. And it's so clear in the book of Ephesians, we are called to submit in love to Jesus and to one another. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy by means of his great love with which he loved us, even being dead in the sins, he made us alive with Christ. You have been saved by grace even raised up together and seated together in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus, in order that he might show himself in open exhibition in the coming ages with reference to the surpassing wealth of his grace and kindness to us in Jesus Christ. Chuck Colson 
went to a meeting where he shared his witness. And in that congregation was a man. They met afterward. And Chuck Colson confronted him with the gospel. This man was the owner of Walgreens, the founder of Walgreens. He didn't know it at the time. But this man was a sinner. And that day he made a decision to become a saint. And poured out resources that funded the opening of prison fellowship. Jesus confronted Nicodemus. Nicodemus walked away. It took him some time to think through what Jesus had said. He couldn't think that through in three days. But when he saw Jesus on the cross, it broke him. And he came through. People have to see Jesus on the cross if they're going to be confronted by their wickedness. It is not going to be a slow process of conversion and self-improvement. It's going to be a straight confrontation with sin. Verse 8, For by the grace you have been saved by means of faith, this is not of you, it is the gift of God, not out of works, so that no one may glory in himself. It is not out of a self-improvement process. It is a straight-on, head-on confrontation between the righteousness of Jesus and the wickedness of a man's heart. And a man has to make a decision. Will he submit to Jesus Christ? Verse 10, For we are his workmanship, having been changed completely in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand in order that we might walk in them. And I've had Christian people that have said, this is what the Lord has said to me. And then when it comes time to do what the Lord said, they say, no, he must have missed it. I'm not going to do it. And that rebellion grieves the Holy Spirit and turns aside the power of God from that person's life. Now, if you look with me, again in the book of Acts, Um, Paul has been placed in chains and he now many years later retells the story of what happened to him on that Damascus road and he adds some interesting 
some interesting facts that we didn't catch in the writing of Acts by Dr. Luke. Acts, the 26th chapter, verse 12. Acts 26, verse 12. At that time, while traveling to to Damascus with authority and full power from the chief priests, at midday, O king, as he's speaking to the Roman king, I saw a light from heaven beyond the brightness of the sun, having shone around me and the ones traveling with me. They, then all of us having fallen to the ground. So he was not the only one who had the brilliant light flash around him. And he was not the only one who fell on the ground. But he was the only one who could hear the word of God and respond to it. The others just had a story of how they got knocked to the ground by this brilliant light. They'd never seen anything like it. Then all of us having fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads the sharp sticks. In other words, part of Paul's rage was the Holy Spirit had been poking him with sharp sticks. Does God ever come and poke you with a sharp stick? Get you moving the way he wants you to move? I think that's one of God's favorite ways of moving us on down the road. Sharp sticks. And it makes us either move on down the road quickly or it makes us very angry. And I said, Who are you, Lord? It's so easy for us to say, That was just the devil poking me. I want to say, Lord, are you poking me? I feel bloodied with sharp pokes of the stick today. I'm going down a road that's not very comfortable. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but you must get up, stand on your feet, and now I appear to you for this purpose, to appoint you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you saw and of things which I will reveal to you, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles. Isn't it amazing? Jesus is not saying one thing about his anger problem. Just head on, look. This is what I'm going to tell you to do. Do it. To open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to the light, from the authority of Satan to God. I mean, what I have to face now is the reality that every sinner is under the authority of Satan. 
Every sinner is under the authority of darkness. And the call of the gospel is to leave the darkness and come into the light. To walk in obedience. It's immediate. It's now. Leave the darkness. And most people that I know have, and I have had, many comfortable hidey caves where the voice of God could be smothered with the entertainment of the world, with the things of the flesh, with the ambition of the mind. A man who says, okay, I've had it. I'm not going to be poor anymore. I'm going to be rich. Whoa. And you're going to follow Jesus? I don't think so. That's not... That's not the deal. The deal is, I'm going to be used by God to call men and women out of the darkness into the light. Now, do I need financial resources to do that? Yes, I do. And many are going to be tent makers and help fund that work of the the gospel going forward. Some of us are going to be full-time preachers. Some of us full-time teachers. Some of us doing something else. But for every one of us, it is the same call. And that is, bring men and women out of the darkness into the light where they can serve the living God of heaven and leave the power of Satan behind. I have wondered so many times, why has Satan had power to thwart what God called me to do? And what I've had to look at very seriously is the theology I have believed. Wesley said, if a man is not walking in righteousness, it's because he's been taught a false theology. And what I'm trying to do now is go back and reread the scriptures and to understand the gospel, not from the culture, of the modern church, but to understand the gospel from the words of Scripture, from Jesus himself. Paul is saying that the Lord said to him, I am sending you to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light and from the authority of Satan to God, to receive Forgiveness or removal of sins with reference to themselves and an inheritance among the ones having already been made holy by means of faith in me. So if I'm understanding this correctly, and I have misunderstood so many things so many times, but if I'm understanding this correctly, and I'm going to know soon because either the blessing of God is on it or it's not. Either the revival is going to move forward or it's not. I'm going to see in the physical realm whether this is correct or not. But it seems to me that what I'm seeing is that we should not be and I should not be spending time struggling with people. Struggling with people. Struggling with people to finally bring them to a place where they might say, okay, I'll serve Jesus, 
but I still have these problems in my life and I can't overcome them. But leaving that darkness and coming to a place where we say, look, there is total victory in Jesus Christ by his blood as we place our faith in him and we are crucified with Christ and we are changed people. We are made holy by faith in Jesus Christ. That's what I'm hearing. So he says, For which reason, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but first to the ones in Damascus and Jerusalem and to all the region of Judea and to the Gentiles, proclaiming to them to repent and to turn to God, practicing works worthy of repentance. Let's pray. Lord, I am desperately crying out to you for the fullness of your Spirit to give me the fullness of sight in the Spirit and to be victorious now in this work of the gospel in turning the hearts of men and women from darkness to light, from wickedness to righteousness. Lord, accomplish your purpose now. I wait upon you. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.